Okay, I am at it again in a series of um, talks where really, honestly, the goal is for, you know, my goal in these podcasts are, is basically to work out sections of my next book. And so I was writing notes and then I decided, well... I will podcast it and talk through it, think through it and talk through it as a podcast. So the consequence of doing that is they're rough. Um, (laughs) I never quite know exactly how they're going to turn out and so on and so forth. Um, But um, so, you know, I've been reading um, The Managerial Revolution by this guy, James Burnham. And also a book that I like more by the same author, Burnham, called The Machiavellians, Defenders of Freedom. Both of, the, both of these books I got from a suggestion from Mark Andreessen, the venture capitalist guy who started Netscape. Um, and um, he, I really liked his podcast on Sam Harris's podcast. I, I, he was a guest on some Sam Harris's podcast, and I really liked what he had to say. Uh, in fact, well, I'll get to that later, what he had to say about advertising and big tech. But he mentioned these were a couple of books that were formative for him and understanding what was going on, um, you know, in what was going on in modern society and culture, basically. And so I've been reading that, and then I'm reading... Because the book also is, I'm planning on it being a history of the 21st century or being told in, uh, you know, using the, using more than a device, but being told in a historical mode or a historical narrative. So the points that I want to make, the arguments I want to make, what I want to highlight, the themes um, all that's being actually just unfolding in the 21st century and the events, the events of the 21st century. And so because of that, I have to go back and read, how did all this stuff actually start? And um, back in 2005, six, seven, in that time frame, really between about 2005 and 2015, Something roughly like that, I was basically picking up books at the bookstore, like Barnes and Noble, <laughs> and basically everything on the hit like how did you know how did Google start? How did Facebook start? How did Wikipedia start right and so you know there's actually some of these books are really, really well written, like John Battelle wrote the search how Google and its rivals rewrote the rules of business and transformative culture. And he wrote this, it was published in 2005. So it's about the early beginnings of Google and it's, it's actually really well written. It's a good book. Um, and then uh, Ken Aletta, I don't know if I'm saying his last name correctly. He wrote in a later version of it, which has a more, a more comprehensive, if not apocalyptic subtitle, Google Googled the end of the world as we know it. And um, I think this was, uh, you know, 2011, 2012 or something. So it was after 
if not even later. So as as after Google had become, you know, this monolith company. So, you know, I'm reading this kind of stuff and, um, you know, it occurs to me that, uh, like I don't have the thesis, like, so I'm not trying to write a polemic, but I'm not just recounting facts and events either. Like I'm trying to make a point. I'm trying to develop a point that I think is important for the reader. And it occurs to me when I'm reading all this, like, I don't know, like the, the, I have the point, but it's not actually out in front. It's not externalized yet. That's different than saying, I don't know what I'm talking about. And I don't have a point. I have the point, but it's internal. It's still, I don't have it out yet. Like, so that I can say it, like I couldn't give an elevator pitch really for the book that I was comfortable with or satisfied with at this point, because I wouldn't know really what I'm trying to hammer on, like hammer home. And so let me give just a few examples of how this kind of could unwind, you know, how this could unfold. The first book, The Myth of Artificial Intelligence, is basically, okay, as we view machines as getting smarter and smarter, and as that message takes prominence, right, uh, gains prominence, right, uh, we, we also correspondingly whether intentionally or just con- as a consequence of the machines becoming smarter meme, we also tend to think of ourselves in deflationary terms. So this is really, it's kind of unavoidable that if you think the future belongs to computation in this kind of very real sense of on this science fiction sense, like literally, the, uh, you know, the discussion is that, that um, advanced artificial intelligence will become smarter than uh, human beings. And so the future kind of in this very real uh, sense actually belongs to the technology that we build. And so when you have this crossover point, people talk about the singularity and, and um, people talk about super intelligence, super intelligence being smarter than human intelligence. And so, but what happens when you have these ideas is that just the logical implications of those kind of ideas are that humans just aren't that important. So we value intelligence. Machines are becoming more intelligent. At some point, they'll be more intelligent than us. So whatever it is that we thought we were in the Enlightenment, in the Renaissance, right? But for most of human history, whatever it is that we thought we were doing or thought that we were, you know, turns out that that's actually wrong. And we're just in a, we're in a kind of holding zone spot in history and we'll be overtaken by kind of ironically in a way by our own um, victory. You know, this great technological achievement actually will eclipse us. And so it just turns out that we're not that smart. And so you see actually in the 21st century, this all this literature that is increasingly skeptical and pessimistic about the ability of people to innovate, to solve problems, to have good judgment, just this litany of, of, of complaints about the, about, you know, human personhood, human thinking, human intelligence. So you see, for instance, Daniel Kahneman, I've said this many times, the, yeah, he won a Nobel Prize, I think, for something in economics, but he does a lot of this 
this kind of psychology of bias, cognitive bias. And he, uh, he and Tversky, I think the late Tversky, you know, kind of revolutionized this, this field of bias, actually. In, in fact, I think uh, the great um, English writer Michael Lewis wrote his, one of his last books was actually about that, the, the uh, relationship, the partnership between Tversky and uh, Kahneman on, these, on this idea that we, we have this un, all these underlying weaknesses and, but the idea is kind of optimistic that in, insofar as we can, um, you know, we can correct them if we know about them. But in his latest book, this is, the, this is the progression in the 21st century from his earlier stuff like Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow. And, uh, his latest book, Noise, basically just says quite bluntly, uh, we, we are very bad at judgment, about making judgments about things. Like a, a judge making a judgment about, uh, you know, a uh, you know a sentence to pass down. There's we we have we exhibit humans do we exhibit what noise, which noise is a statistical term that means, you know, it, it's uh, it's sort of random, right? So <laughs> there's a huge and kind of random uh, pattern of judgments that we that we make on all these problems and classes of problems and it would be and he says this really baldly like really just bluntly he says uh algorithms just do a better job at this in other words this is another case that machines just do better than human minds and so we should look to them and you make use of them and so on and so you know this this kind of trend has been has been going on in the 21st century so i you know since i wrote the first book the first book was a critique of this idea that machines really are becoming smart in the way that people are smart. But there was a secondary theme in the book that was touched on mostly in the third part, which was that um, we're making two mistakes, actually. We're not only thinking that machines are becoming smart like people, but we're making a mistake of thinking that uh, people are actually not capable of very much. And so we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot where there's this kind of cultural, social... Um, self-imposed straitjacket of, stu- of stupidity and, and, and a lack of, of in- inspiration um, to, to do things. And so, you know, you see this all over the place. So here's the problem, and I'm getting at this without actually stating it directly. Here's the problem. What's the thesis um, uh, for, you know, for the new book? So if you take somebody like, someone like Yevgeny, Morozov, who wrote, uh, a, actually, it was a really, really good book. It was pre, it's pretty old now. I think it was about 2013. It was, a, um, it was on technological solutionism, which is a very connected theme. And the book was To Save Everything, Click Here, right? Uh, and so, um, but, you know, if you look at Morozov's thesis, he's saying, look, we, we are increasingly, thi- we, we, what we're doing is saying that every problem can, has a solution and that solution will always be technical, technological. And so what happens is, is that it, it, it turns out that we stop looking for solutions that we, we, right? There's all these different ways we could have solved this problem, right? But we look, we knee-jerk reaction, look for a technological solution. And in fact, we, he, he has this idea in his up 
upcoming book, which I think isn't out for until 2024. Um, but he has this idea that uh, he called it obsoletism, where it's like we can actually act in such a way that the problem goes away without actually trying to positively solve it with technology. So there's, that's a completely kind of, you know, Copernican shift in the way we think about these, these things, but it's not going to occur to very many people in a culture that believes that tech solves problems and, and uh, more tech, sol- you know, is even better for solving problems and every problem can be solved, uh, right? And so he, his argument is that this kind of idea is actually ruining the world <laughs> and actually we're creating all these problems by thinking this way and we're never going to solve them because the addition of more tech actually just creates more problems. And so we're just missing the point, right? Um, and so that's really connected, right? Like why would we miss the point? Well, maybe because we don't value human intelligence. We're not thinking that we can take things on other than, you know, we're increasingly funneling our ability to make sense of the world and to fix things in the world and to, you know, fix our own, you know, happiness or increase our own happiness in the world. We're increasingly funneling that into a technological question. And so if that's faulty from the beginning or if it's limited from the beginning, we're in big trouble because it's becoming absolutist. It's becoming the only way that society sort of thinks about things now. Um, and so, you know, I suppose what's left over is this kind of weird defeatist sort of, you know, we should do mindfulness and lots of yoga and this very passive kind of, right, like don't build new roads and bridges and take on big projects and show, you know, show how, you know, the best is yet to come for human society, just sort of like really meditate, you know, as we sink deeper into this realization that we've, we've, you know, we're, we're dumb compared to, you know, our, our computers and we have very little to look forward to <laughs> other than being replaced and, and obsoleted, right? Like, so this is, this, is not a very good, this is not a very good time in history if you look at it this way, right? Um, so the question is, I'm not talking about technological solutionism. That's what Morozov is talking about. But, I'm, but it's related. I'm talking about something else. And the question is, is what exactly am I talking about? So... When I, t- when I tell the story of the 21st century, it's sort of like, it's a, it's a what went wrong. There's plenty of uh, jingoistic, congratulatory, right, histories, you know, or, you know, I'm reading a lot of them right, right now to get the facts right. But there's all kinds of that stuff out there. But, but uh, there's, very little, there's, there's very little discussion of sort of what went wrong. Even though I'm sort of convinced that we're in this really bad spot, it's sort of, we're in this kind of anti-Renaissance right now. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, and this is kind of actually one of the reasons I think it's so hard for people to see it. It's like, gee, everybody's getting miserable. Things are just sort of getting worse. Um, but because this, because the narrative is this kind of weird, almost contradictory. It's this combination of, yeah, we're, we're, excuse my language, but yeah, we're screwed, right? Because of this, because of this kind of, you know, because of the march of technology that we can't stop now. And it's specifically the artificial, the smart technology, AI. Um, you know, so the idea is that we have this confluence of like, we're really screwed. And yet also 
We've done all this amazing innovation. Just look at the world. Look at what your phone, your phone is, you know, uh, you know, a million times more, you know, powerful than what they put in the, you know, in, in, in what NASA put in the, you know, the, the, uh, the rocket that went to the moon in the 1960s, right? I don't know if it's a million or what it is, but it's just, you know, it's just this huge leap forward in all these ways. So we have this like weird contradictory narrative that everywhere you look, you just see human innovation. You see, right? Like you just see the, the triumph of all these ideas that were, that were germinated in the 1960s and 1970s with the computer revolution, right? The, the information technology revolution. Uh, and, you know, you see them all come to fruition roughly in the 21st century. I mean, really the web came of age in the, the early part of the 21st century, um, and, right? So, but on the other hand, like there's this really depressing, it's coupled with, partnered with this really depressing idea that it's all for naught and we're, and we're really kind of dumb and, <laughs> and we can't really be trusted to make judgments anymore. And so it's, it's sort of like really difficult to see how you can crawl out of that mess once that kind of gets in your bones, right? It's, it's hard to see how you're going to carve uh, a really bold, um, you know, future out of that sort of um, morass, as it were. So, so I return. What would, so what is, so, so what, what is the theme? Now, let me give some other examples of the constellation of ideas around this general idea of machine smart people, dumb, whoops. Um, Everything is getting digitized. That's, the, that's another idea that's a little bit odd. So I've done a, a, I did a lot of reading on uh, basically empiricism. And there's some connections to be made here. Um, so a, if you digitize something, you datify it because uh, <laughs> digital stuff is discrete. So you need discrete stuff to... To digitize, so you need data. What is data? Data are facts made uh, electronic, basically. So at least that's what they, we conceive of them as that, right? So if you take, you know, what's a what's a fact? I don't know, like how many? I think I put in the book what's a fact. Uh, you know, how many North Face jackets are on you know Thirteenth Avenue? And I forget now, Wellborn or something. Uh, I forget this. I forget. I forget the streets I used to live in Chicago. But briefly, but how many North Face jackets on December seventh are there? You know, on this corner of downtown Chicago. You know, and like if you if you make if you perfectly delineate the the you know the number of square feet you're talking about, you can actually just count the people, and you can completely verify if they're wearing a North Face jacket, right? Like not black jackets that you think may be North Face, right? But just actually they're North Face jackets. And so you can make a count and then you can actually, you can apply a number. And so you can quantify that. And then you can say, because everything seems perfectly, uh, perfectly, perfectly precise and perfectly accurate, then nothing really can go wrong because nothing else is stated. Nothing else is put on the table, right? So you've got a fact. Oh, that's, that's the idea. So now what, when does that become data? Well, when you go, when you're, when you take that to your, your accountant or whomever and say, you know, put this in a database, 
So what do you do? You put a, you put a column in a row in the database and you say like, here's the North Face jackets uh, row. And then, you know, on December 7th, the, there's the column with the, you know, the days going across, you put, you know, 47 or something. There's a joke in there because when I was in, I don't know if this is true anymore, but when I was in Chicago, like pretty much everyone wore a North Face jacket when it got cold. It was like, <laughs> there was just a sea of North Face jackets in Chicago in December. I don't know if that's still true, but it certainly was true in 2013. It was a sight to behold. Uh, <clears throat> so, okay, so that's the connection between a fact and a data. Now, what do you do with the data? Well, uh, you, <laughs> what you do is you, what it, so the, when you, when you, so when you datify something, or when somebody says like everything's becoming datafied, what do they mean by that? What is the idea behind that? What they're saying is, is that everything that we're doing, everything that we think is important, everything that we're thinking about basically is converting the world into those, those precise statements that are quantifiable. And we're, and we're putting those all into a database. So that we're just creating more and more data. And the connection is that that data is very, very helpful and fruitful for, for people to solve problems. And there are all kinds of problems. We can use those to um, you know, figure out whether a pandemic is going up or down. We can use those to um, you know, figure out uh, what the traffic, the number of cars that go by right, a particular intersection. Um, we can use that sort of data to locate criminals and pictures of, you know, you know photos. I, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. It goes into surveillance. It goes into, it goes, you know, it runs the gamut from great things to really questionable things. Everything becomes data, right? It's datafied. Uh, so that's another quite obvious uh, trend um, that's been really going on since, you know, really actually, if you really wanted to get into the history of datafication, um, the you know the 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 collection of facts as a uh, as something that was really epistemically valued um, actually goes all the way back to all right I think the earliest uh, double entry bookkeeping was like the 14th century and that was it started out almost as theater uh, because um, the idea was that. Um, you know, if you had a double entry book, that meant that you were, um, that you had, you had, you were very fastidious about, it's a little bit too beyond the scope of this podcast, but it was theater in the sense that the original idea of the double entry bookkeeping was as much about saying that you were fastidious about keeping your books as it was actually about whatever the accuracy was, right? So sometimes the, it, everything was square, but all the data was, uh, was obsolete and nobody cared because it showed that it was square at some time. <laughs> and so that, this is definitely not what happened moving forward. But you know, this idea that we're kind of datifying everything actually started with an initial trend that we're factifying everything, right? And then the idea there is that we can, get, we can eliminate... Um, we can eliminate generalizing and philosophizing about things um, and saying things that we don't know are true 
and, speculati- and speculating and so on by, by, by making everything a fact, right? Well, the problem with that, of course, is that not everything is a fact or we can't determine sometimes whether something's a fact or not. Or the process of making it quantifiable ruins something about it. Um, so just quickly, like if you get into, if you get into the problem with, over, you know, with metrics, you know, it turn, you know, people, will, um, people will learn to take the test rather than learn the material. So it seems like it's very beguiling idea that you just make everything a fact because then you just eliminate all this you know, speculation. But the conversion of, the, of, of everything into facts sometimes creates unintended consequences and sometimes it's not even true that they're facts, right? Uh, so there's problems with that. Okay, so back to, back to datification away from factification. Although I actually, fi- I do find just capping that off, I find that a very interesting topic as well. So am I arguing that the 21st century and the triumph of artificial intelligence was really the datification of the world and all the mistakes that are, that are inherent in that, that are buried in that? There's another thesis. Um, and um, uh, am I arguing, here's another one. Am I arguing that via datafication, we're centralizing everything? And so we're ending up in what Foucault called, you know, what did he call it? Foucault had these ridiculous words. The French philosopher who talked about power in society, how power operated in society. I think he called it governmentalizing. And so, but the idea is that what, what uh, the, there are always positive arguments to be made for increasing the scope and the reach and the power of government. But underneath that, right, are these like huge, huge expressions of power. And so you, when you're governmentalizing things, one of the ways you do that is like, he talks a lot about the surveillance society, right? So one of the ways you governmentalize is, is you first got to figure out where everybody is and what they're doing. Because, you know, look, one, one of the, this is, this is actually a, a fun little historical fact, but one of the reasons that kings didn't have a ton of power in the very early, uh, you know, part, you know, very early parts of history that we still have records on is that once you were basically away from you know, their view, right? <laughs> you just kind of disappeared. There was no information technology to figure out where everybody was. So you could just kind of ride a horse out of town and you would just kind of go away. And if somebody, one of the king's men, happened to, happened to find you, then you'd probably be in trouble. But if not, you just sort of disappeared because outside of his, you know, the physical watch almost of the king, there weren't a lot of ways to keep track of stuff. And so the power of the society can't really grow can't really increase, right? You, so underlying datification is this idea of, of centralizing. And, and why do you centralize things? Well, because then, you know, some one person in charge can look at everything. And um, so there's that. And that gets into kind of, you know, that, that could venture into politics. It doesn't have to. You could keep it out of politics, I suppose. Foucault, I think, tried to keep it out of politics. Um, and make more general statements about how these things operate. So is that what's going on? Am I making this point that um, 
artificial intelligence is working as a mirage, basically, so that we can rewire, you know, we being like, I don't know, the rule, you know, whoever is, whoever is making the, whoever is able to make the decisions, uh, however large that number of people is, that's an interesting question too. There's going to be a ruling class. There's going to be people that are ruling and there's going to be people that are ruled. That's kind of universal going all the way back to the first tribe. Um, <laughs> so, you know, how big is that ruling class in, in operation, not by title, but in operation, right? Well, I don't know. There's an interesting question, but is that what's going on? So the, the AI narrative is a kind of mythology that serves to, you know, cow everyone into accepting datafication and central, you know, centralization for Foucaultian, you know, purposes in the end. Well, I don't know that that's false, but I don't know that that's what I'm saying. So, you know, and I don't think, frankly, I'm going to get to, yeah, I, I would say, I would say I, I'm still trying to externalize the very clear thesis that I'm making where all the other points sup are supportive, but not central. And I would say at the end of the day, because my first book was the, um, this kind of, you know, seesaw effect of, you know, the machines go up, the people go down. That was really the underlying theme of the first book. Well, the theme of the first book was the machines aren't going up, but we, we, we think they are. Now, why is that? And so, you know, but the, the secondary theme was the, the, that kind of seesaw effect. The machines go up, the people go down. Now, um, I say... It's got, my thesis has got to be connected to that. And I think the idea has to be that um, that fulcrum, that point of the machines going up also curiously is, a, is about intelligence. And so it hinges on intelligence, right? So and intelligence is the ability to solve problems. It's the ability to see problems, right? It's, the, it's, 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 it's everything, it's almost everything, not everything, but it's almost everything we really care about and value. Um, and so because that's what's at issue, pretty much all, the, a really large class or slew of things are going to get compromised, right? Um, now, I'm going to cut this off because I these are 30-minute podcasts, but I don't know that... That's everything I'm saying, or that's clear enough yet. And it's bothering me, but I also know, I can see this, this, I don't want this to sound mystical, but I also know that it will get externalized. Like I know it's in there <laughs> in, in, in my, but I, I, and I just can't, I, I'm not sure I can externalize yet exactly how I want to make this because I need the reader to see what I'm saying with absolute clarity, absolute clarity. You can't compromise on that. They have to be able to see that. And it doesn't matter. If you're going to tell a story and it comes out in the story, that's fine. But it's got to come out in the story so that at the end of the story, there's absolute clarity. You, have an, you, you need the reader to have an aha, you know, an aha moment. Like, oh, man, that's what's going on. Now, what does that mean? It means it has to be true. <laughs> and then you've got to be able to expose it. So, yeah. So that's my first attempt. And I'll have to do another one to get it better. <laughs>